From the Jesuits of Canada and the United States, this is AMDG. I'm Mike Jordan-Lasky, and I'm joined today by my friend Nick Rapatrizone. Nick, how you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. So I have you on today because we're going to talk about a Jesuit book club meeting we had back in October. You and I are facilitators of that. Uh, we, we pick a different book, we ask folks to read along with us, and then we have these live online events with authors. And the session in October was with the great memoirist and poet Mary Carr. And usually those sessions were on Zoom. We do it for the hour. We say goodbye, and that's the end of it. But this one was so much fun and so good that we thought we got to turn this into a podcast. So we wanted to uh, introduce folks who might not have been there live and tell you a little bit about Mary. Yeah, Mary Carr is, I think, one of the best storytellers around, certainly one of the best Catholic storytellers. Um, in, in our conversation, she was hilarious, she was smart, um, makes you think, makes you sort of reflect on your faith. Uh, and, and we heard stories from her conversion that she had originally written about for Vogue magazine, all the way up to the present day, um, some literary stories that she shared uh, that were really just fascinating and heartfelt. So. It was, it was certainly an, an honor to speak with her, and uh, I think people will really enjoy uh, the stories that she shares. Yeah, so the book we read it and talked about was her most recent collection of poetry called Tropic of Squalor, which uh, we asked her to read three of those poems, and then we asked her questions about them. Uh, and so we'll, we'll hear those, and then we'll hear a little bit also about her writing process and kind of what she's working on now. Um, so, so Nick, do you want to go ahead and set up the, the first poem, and then we'll let Mary from back in October uh, take it away? Sure. Um, the first poem from her, her 2018 collection, Tropic of Squalor, that she's going to share with us is Illiterate Progenitor. My father lived so far from the page, the only mail he got was marked occupant. The century had cored him with its war, and he paid bills in person, believed in flesh and the family plan. In that house of bookish females, his glasses slid on for fishing lures and carburetor work, the obits, my report cards, the scores. He was otherwise undiluted by the written word. At a card table, his tales could entrance a ring of guys till each Timex paused against each pulse, and they'd stare like schoolboys even as he wiped from the center, the green bills anteed up. Come home, I'm lonely, he wrote an undulating script. I'd left to scale some library's marble steps like Everest till I was dead to the wordlessness he was mired in, which drink made permanent. He took his smoke unfiltered, milk unskimmed. He liked his steaks marbled, fat back on mustard greens, onions eaten like apples, split turnips dipped into rock salt, hot pepper vinegar on black beans. That was great. Thank you. Thank um, you. There's a, at the end of the first stanza, there's such a great phrase um, to describe the narrator's father uh, when, when you wrote, believed in flesh and the family plan. And flesh and family feel so tactile. Um, and the entire phrase, though, is a type of formulation that kind of makes my 
like Catholic literary radar go off. And I obviously knew that you know you're Catholic before I read this poem, but it kind of just reaffirmed it. So so I guess I would ask you, um, do you think there's an especially Catholic type of attention to detail that it can occur within poetry? Well, I, thank you, Nick. That's a great question. I think that um, from doing the spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius, I think um, uh, I, I, had, I had converted, I had really come in on the Holy Spirit. I was really not much of a, of a Jesus person. And um, I thought Jesus was kind of a sap. Uh, and I didn't get it. He was uh, scary to me. And the whole, you know, the mother without any pores in her face and no hymen and no vagina and just everything was so at once carnal because of the butchered body and also um, glazed over in the in the statuary. Um, I, even though I hadn't been brought up Catholic and had no Catholic background, I... Um, I guess I had that trait. There's something about carnality, I think, in Catholicism about the body uh, that we kneel, that we stand up and sit down. That the that the Eucharist is not metaphor; it's actual flesh and blood. Um, so all of that was pretty subtle for me, and and um, but I liked it. I liked. I like that part of it. And I remember before I was baptized saying to my son, we were after mass one day, we were about to go downstairs and have donuts. And uh, I was sitting there looking at the cross and he's like, what are you looking at? I'm like, I really hate this like butchered body, you know? And he's like, what do you mean? And I was like, well, it's just, it's horrible. It's just depressed, like a car wreck. Every week you come in, you look at this car wreck body. And he's like, Mom, like, what else would people pay attention to? And I, and my idea of hell was somebody saying, look what I did for you. And, and to see that, look what I did for you as what would, I mean, what would people pay attention to? Some guy sitting under a tree with his eyes closed who says everything's better now. Um, this is a story. <laughs> I mean, this is a story. And so that idea that that's what we needed, and my son really made it clear to me than any theology ever had is marketing. So, um, and then doing the spiritual exercises, I think uh, the idea that God would call to me from my body, from desire, from the place uh, Jesus you know, put on this animal suit like we have. Um, this this meat suit we all wear around, walking around. So yes, I think it is kind of, don't you think it's kind of a Catholic thing? I, I think, uh, I love your answer, first of all, but I think I think what you're talking about with the, the physicality, the, there's like, almost like a kinesthetic sense to Catholic participation. And, and um, I mean, that's, like you said, you couldn't avoid it as someone who was entering into that world. And, and I love that you, you often talk about your son and sort of what he showed to you. And I think it was, you know, we'll talk about later about his curiosity, which kind of led to this. Um, so even that, I feel like that's the poet's mind allowing oneself to open into a world that is so new and so visceral. 
So I certainly agree with you. Yeah. And I took so much comfort in mass in the way we all moved, all moved together. It was kind of like, I know this is going to be really stupid, but it's true. I really always liked a, my dance teachers or my aerobics teachers or the women in a dance class or men too, people I, when I took a dance, I always took dance classes after I was in college. And um, something about moving the way other people move, moving your bodies in the same way. It's tribal. I mean, it is. It's tribal and it, and it binds you to other people. It makes you, I always walk into mass, not always, but especially at the beginning, I would walk in feeling like, why are they even letting me be in here? And I always left feeling like I really liked everybody. So that's, you know, that's why I went. I thought, boy, that's a, that's a magic trick. Have you thought about that? Why do you think that works? Does that still happen to you? It does. It does. I mean, um, the mass I like to go to in um, New York, I go to a couple, I go to a lot of places. I'm very promiscuous uh, church attendee, but um, I like to go to the morning mass that all the, the, the cleaning people go to, a lot of women who clean other people's houses. Uh, most, you know, I would say, you know, Latino. And um, I always like to sit behind them. They sit down kind of close to the front, but not right on the front row. And I like to sit behind them because I feel like they're going to show me how to do it, how to pray. Um, so, yes, it, it, it does it does still happen to me, oddly enough. But I think, I think, um, you know, there's some great studies being done about how AA works and how recovery from addiction works. There's a guy doing a lot of research at New York Hospital now. When you hear people's stories and tell your own story, you secrete a, a hormone called oxytocin which is what women secrete when they breastfeed. And you actually feel bonded to, uh, it makes you bond with other people. And so even just hearing somebody call out in mass their intentions, you know, pray for my daughter, pray for my sons in Iraq, or pray for my child or my mother, just knowing that much of what they're suffering it's so, they're so much easier to love. Sometimes I do feel like in church, you're with people who you wouldn't be with in like any other context. I don't know if you feel that way too, like that you've kind of thrown into this. Oh, I always feel that way. I mean, I certainly at the beginning, I just thought, who are these people? I didn't have any like, I mean, Toby Wolf went to the, who was a friend of mine, went to the church that we wound up joining and he said, it's, you know, they're nice people, you know, it's, it's nothing fancy. It was not a fancy place, very low key, very low key priest. Somebody who didn't pray slow to show you how holy he was, <laughs> which I really liked, you know. He had this very matter of fact way of saying, saying mass, very matter of fact, nothing like, and we join with the angels and saints. Hallelujah, hallelujah. And just glum and like dour and just whew. 
He sort of did it with the back of his hand. I really liked it. This is narrator Mike popping in to set up Mary's next poem. But let me first just say that I love this part of the book club meeting. Mary starts with this poem, Illiterate Progenitor, and then instead of talking about it at all, she just goes, bam, right into this deep spiritual conversation that felt like going on retreat. It was so fun to listen back to this part. Okay, so next up, we asked Mary to read her poem, Discomfort Food for the Unwhole. To check out, we line up our carts, each head bent over a shining phone. Through these squares of light, we tap, tap with opposable thumbs. And though each human unit occupies a small space, a few floor tiles, each believes that through the glow in her hands, she can reach far, so from this place far. Our sprawling alphabets include hearts or dollar signs or cartoons thumbed or cartoon thumbs turned up or down to vote some Barabbas alive or dead. But ours is a city of I-beams and mirrored towers. Behind us stretch rows of iced gulf shrimp, New Zealand lamb, the Russian sturgeon's glistening black eggs, dewy orchids misty from Brazil. So much from so many for so few, and at such spectacular cost. And yet we cannot lift our heads from our hands to look around. We cannot stop ourselves. Each face hung forward off the neck of the corpse each self devours. It's a cheerful little ditty. <laughs> so did, did this come, did you first think of this poem while you were standing on a line at a Whole Foods? Yes, I did. Yes, I did. I was, I was at the, I was at the Whole Foods and, um, you know, these, this crazy Ignatian stuff that I try to do, this Ignatian practice is, I have a, I have a sort of amazing spiritual director who always says it's a, it's a poem of that, that it's a, a practice of noticing. I think any spiritual practice is a practice of noticing. You're kind of, you know, going through the world with your fishing pole over your shoulder, you know, don't diddy, don't, 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 you know, like the dog in the cartoon. And then you notice, you notice a thing. And, and there is, uh, for me, I, I am such a, I'm such a natural depressive and such a glum bunny by nature. I mean, I'm, I've gotten a lot better over the decades, but I was so depressed so much in my life. And, um, and, uh, that noticing has really we not only rewired my brain uh, to stop and al allow myself to notice, look, I'm in here with all these yummy things, including the other human beings, you know, the crown of, of the creation, you know, these, my fellow citizens who always, I always say, you know, ever notice that everybody else is traffic? And you're like an important person trying to get through the line at Whole Foods, you know, with serious stuff to do. And uh, yeah, so I, I do feel like sometimes that I'm dead a lot of the time. I'm not alive. If God's speaking to me, how would I know? I mean, God could have a megaphone up to my ear going, 
you know, spelling out in, in caviar, Mary Carr, I'm speaking only to you. And I would be like, oh, you know, why didn't I win the lottery? Do you remember, like, what is it that um, that snaps you out? What is that experience like when you're kind of in and then to like have a moment in which you're like able to kind of step back and, and notice? Usually irritation. I mean, I'm a, I'm a big fan of irritation. I think as a, I've been sober 32 years, but I certainly I think when I drank, I, I cultivated complaint as a way to justify my own drinking. I think, I think a lot of us do. Um, you just, it's a depressant drug for one thing. And then you, you know, you want to be able to drink. And so you think, well, if they had what happened to me happened to them, they'd be drinking too. And you kind of cultivate that. I mean, you've all been in a, in a bar and there's some sad sack, you know, at the end of the bar, you know, talking about his divorce or her divorce, you know, or their divorce, whatever. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think often irritation with other human beings and I have now a kind of practice when I start to be irritated, often on public transportation, often the sub New, New York subway, um, I've got a little, you know, almost like a tick where I'll be like, Lord have mercy. I used to walk down the street praying for people's faces, you know, Lord have mercy, Lord have mercy. And when you start praying for people's faces, their faces start to get very particular. They stop just looking like, you know, the guy in the white shirt and you start to feel something, or I do, start to feel things. Um, so, you know, I live alone in a small apartment in New York and I, um, I do that because I'm a, a prickly kind of irritable person to be, you know, like a lot of poets, you know, we're hypersensitive. So, or that's our excuse, but. So the poem kind of starts that way. It seems to me like born out of this moment of noticing. And then as I'm reading along, I'm like, oh, it's going to have this thing at the end. That's going to like, uh, this last line, the kicker will like ask me to, um, maybe to pause and try to like also be better, but it doesn't do that. <laughs> The last line, we cannot stop ourselves. Each face hung forward off the neck of the corpse, each self devours. Um, so like. So dark. Well, right. So yeah, you could have gone like more hopeful there, I guess, but you didn't. So what, yeah, what led to that, um, the way, the end of that poem? Well, I mean, it's a confession of my own sin, isn't it? I mean, it's a, it's a confession. I mean, it's a, you know, that irritation complaint is delicious, you know, gossip you know, burning somebody's house down is delicious. Yeah, if I could just shut up most of the time, I'd be fine. So, uh, yeah, yeah, we can't, we can't, I mean, it's saying we can't lift our heads. And, 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 and if you don't lift your head and you don't notice, you are kind of welcoming a certain kind of death, you know. We asked Mary to read a third poem from the collection, how God Speaks. Not with face slap or body slam, rarely with lightning bolt or thunderclap, but in sighs and inclinations, leanings, the way a baby suckles breath. 
The green current of the hazel wand curves toward the underground spring. The man in cashmere flesh does arrive, holding out his arms. He is wide, as any horizon I've ever traversed desert for. He brings thread count to my bed, fire to my oven. With a towel tucked in his jeans, he soaps my hair, then finger combs it dry. I massage a knot from his neck. His mouth is well water, his gaze true, and from his tongue he brings the blessed word. I love that poem. Uh, you know, it's a uh, it's such a God steeped book, and and I think that of course carries through really a lot of your work, um, implicitly, explicitly, uh, and and you're really able to write about God in, in this kind of poem with, with a real sincerity and skill, and I think that combination is is super challenging. Um, I know when we try to choose books for the Jesuit book club, you know, we try to hold to a really high standard on people who, who write about God, but do so in, in, the, in the best way. So, you know, I, I think with, with this poem, I, I wonder how, how does, how does a poem like this kind of arrive for you? How much revision and reconsideration is involved before it gets to the type of piece that we see in, in a book collected like this? I'm a, I'm a very, um, I have a sort of stingy little talent. I mean, maybe uh, I have a lot of poet friends. Terrence Hayes is just a great, great American poet, very generative talent. Um, uh, and my talent is just very, whatever I have, it's very, I'm not, I sort of eke things out. I'm not a very swashbuckling down the page. I'm a, I'm a very dogged re, uh, reviser. And so maybe this started out, um, I think it started out just with, uh, through the hazel, hazel wand and this underground spring, thinking about how we do incline, you incline, uh, you incline towards something, you have a feeling for something, you have a, an ability or a taste for, you know, marble comic books or, you know, spicy gumbo or fill in the blank french fries i mean everybody has a taste for french fries but and then i thought about uh, well i mean i'd certainly read Teresa of avila and about uh passion passion for the lord passion for jesus passion for that is an erotic an erotic passion in a way um and that uh so i think i really went around and about with this and and i think i revised i usually revise things like literally over years like over years it just takes forever for me to finish something and i'll ha always have a bunch of things going and i kind of noodle and come back and then think no this is i'm not even gonna ever look at this again and then i come back to it and then i so yeah i noodle i'm a noodler i'm a big noodler there's a great line in philip roth's um great book, uh, whose name has fallen out of my head, uh, where it's a young writer goes to visit the older writer and says, you know, and he says, how do you do it? And the guy says, you know, I'm a writer. I sit, sit at my desk and move words around. And that's it. It's like, does this look better over here? Let's put it over. Oh, let's pick it up and go over there and that kind of thing. So 
I think it's, it, I was going to ask you actually, when you were saying that it takes you sometimes years to work a poem out, like if you, if you have like a lot of stuff going at once. And I think, I feel like that's such a hard or a difficult thing for other people, writers or not to accept that writing could be such, the duration of it could be so long. Um, do you feel like, what, what allows you to, like, let's say that How God Speaks takes two or three years. What, what is the, the through line of that? Because, you know, our life, so much happens in a day, in a month, in a year. What, what allows you to return, if you like, to pieces? I think I'm just, it's just compulsive. It's just something I've always done. I mean, I've been writing. If you had asked me when I was four years old what I was going to be, I would have said a poet. I mean, I five, a poet, six, a poet. You know, I, I just, it seemed like, it was like saying I was going to be a griffin, you know, or a, a trapeze artist or something. Like, I'd never met such a thing, but it, it, but it seemed so glorious. So um, it really is like I'll work on something very obsessively, you know, for hours and hours and hours. And then I'll, I usually just get weary or I, I can't see it anymore. I can't see if it's any good. And then I go away and I work on something else until I've forgotten it. And then I come back to it and I sort of have, I always tell my students when you leave this program, I teach at Syracuse in the MFA program. Um, I want you to have two selves. I want you to have the writer self that says, God, this is great. You're a genius. Boy, you have this. And then the editor self that is like, what are you thinking? Like, what is the matter with It's such a cliche. What are you, what is wrong with you? And so, and I just kind of go waddling back to it, or I'm haunted. There's some things that I'm really uh, haunted by. Uh, and certainly the memoirs are very, also very poured over. I'm just not much of a generative. I admire, I mean, somebody like Father James Martin is just so prolific. It's so irritating. A little bit later in the session, we were talking about what Mary is working on now. And I found this part of the discussion so fascinating, because when we talked, Mary had been starting early work on this book about her sister, who tragically passed away during the pandemic. But Mary admitted she wasn't sure if this is the book God is calling her to write. It felt like such a privilege to be shown a bit of Mary's own spiritual journey as a writer. And this is the final part we'll leave you with from our incredible Jesuit book club gathering with Mary Carr. I'm talking to my spiritual director because I don't know if this is what God wants me to write. I've sort of been working on this book and I don't know what God, if this is a vanity project, just something little Mary Carr thought up. Uh, to make money with at home in her spare time, or if this is really a book that God wants me to write. So I'm currently in a state of what they call discernment, which means trying to decide some damn thing. Well, right. That's a good, a good Jesuit word. Are there, do you mind like sharing any like questions you're sitting with as you're discerning that or things you're pondering? You don't have to get too specific. Yeah, I mean, my sister and I had a very fraught, troubled relationship, even though we were super close. And she was certainly my hero when we were growing up. Um, and we were pretty mean to each other, I think, like a lot of siblings are. 
I've been reading a lot about siblings, and one of the things I've learned is uh, in earlier centuries, people with younger siblings tended to die more. <laughs> I mean, the younger siblings tended to die more. Um, so that idea of saying, you know, either there weren't enough resources or they caught germs when they were little that they weren't immune to or, uh, but that idea about sibling rivalry actually being a survival, you know, I, she got more ice cream than me. Uh, that might actually be like, like kind of a smart, like we were in a house with very few resources, not in terms of money. We were comfortably working class. We had food, uh, but very few emotional resources. And I think we were both damaged uh, in ways uh, that I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. So I don't want, part of me wants to get a laser pointer out and show how I was the good sister and she was Satan incarnate. And, um, and then part of me wants to say how she was an angel and I was, you know, a raging bitch. And um, part of me just wants to tell stories about her, to hear her and conjure her and be near her. So uh, I don't know what where God is in my writing practice right now. I don't know. So I'm starting a period of discernment uh, with a meeting, I think next week with Father James Martin, who's my uh, spiritual director, so. Well, he, he knows some things, so hopefully... Uh... I hope he'll, like, kill a chicken and swing it over my head and tell me what to do. <laughs> AMDG is a production of the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the United States, and when we're not working from home, the show is recorded at our headquarters in Washington, D.C. AMDG is edited by Marcus Bleach, and our theme music is by Kevin Lasky. The Jesuit Conference communications team is Marcus Bleach, Eric Clayton, Megan Leapsch, Becky Sindelar, and me. Connect with the Jesuits online at jesuits.org, on Twitter at Jesuit News, Instagram at WeAreTheJesuits, and facebook.com slash Jesuits. Sign up for weekly email reflections by visiting jesuits.org slash weekly. If you or someone you know might be called to discern a vocation to the Jesuits, connect with the Jesuit vocation promoter at beajesuit.org. Drop us an email with questions or comments at media at jesuits.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as St. Ignatius of Loyola may or may not have said, go and set the world on fire.